So I see that you have you have an iPhone. So at least one iPhone. Um, so your phone doesn't last to the end of the day without recharging. Well, it depends how much you use it. You don't use it that much. Yeah, but wife. the people that are heavy users, the, by 2 o'clock, their phone, their phone needs six? to be charged. Oh, really? Yeah, well, incrementally, incrementally, they always add um, yeah. battery life. Uh-huh. So I always talk about this idea that, you know, we have our hearts. And our hearts never need to be recharged. We never have any downtime. And it beats steadily for 90 years. Yeah. You know, it's just a wonderful gift of the Almighty. You know, we breathe about 100,000 times a day. Um, and there's no, you know, we don't have, like, uh, reminders. Like, imagine you had to be conscious about that. Just, right. you know. I tell my, I show my kids, I say, listen, you know, I snap in front of their face. Uh-huh. And they all blink. Like, oh, wh- why are you blinking? Like, is, you made a decision? Hey, there's a projectile coming at me really right. fast. Uh, and it may damage my eye. Uh-huh. Uh, I have a lid. Why don't I close it? Is that what you do? Or it's just automatic. It's the mighty the mighty mates gives us these instincts. It's just a it's just a gift. Just, yeah. There's no there's no other words to describe it. Just, and you know. Uh, so tonight we're going to tackle, um, I think maybe one of the most important uh, subjects of all. We are deep in the middle of the thirteen principles of faith, and the reason why I bought this book brought this book. Everyone sees the book. Talmud Bavli. This is the famous Babylonian Talmud. This is it. When you say Talmud, they're 99 out of 100 times talking about, well, probably 998 times out of 1,000 talking about the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, as opposed to the Jerusalem Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud was obviously obviously written in Babylon. Babylon is what we call Iraq today, Baghdad. Um, The Jerusalem Talmud obviously was written Incorrect. Uh, it's a, my favorite trivia. It was written in Tiberius. Um, it was because the Jewish people at that time in the third to fourth century of the Common Era, they weren't in Jerusalem. Because when the Romans um, when the Romans destroyed the Second Temple in the year 70, they kicked all the Jews out there and they took a Jewish city and turned it into a, a pagan city for, for Jupiter. They turned Temple Mount into like a, like a temple for Jupiter. And they kicked all the Jews out of the city. So all the Jews, all the Jewish uh, community and society that existed in Israel after the year 70 was either north, most typically north in the Galilee, in, the, in, in what we call today the Galilee, northern Israel, uh, central Israel, or southern Israel, um, like, uh, like Qumran and, um, and, uh, and, and the like, uh, the Dead Sea area, but not in Jerusalem. So the Jewish community, they... Um, assembled a tremendous amount of scholars, and they started writing the Talmud, which ended up being the first Talmud, uh, and they wrote it in Tiberius, but they called it the Jerusalem Talmud, because even a Jew, even a Jew is out of Jerusalem throughout the millennia. You're out of Jerusalem, you're, you're, your heart's still still there. You know, we always pray to Jerusalem wherever you are. It's part of our prayers every day. We talk about Jerusalem and reestablishing Jerusalem, and especially when the wounds of the destruction were so fresh, it was on everyone's mind. So they said, we're going to call it the Jerusalem Talmud. This, the Babylonian Talmud, was written 150 years later. Why is this the pre- preferred or the A one few reasons. A few reasons. Number one, because it was written afterwards, which may sound counterintuitive, because 
typically in Judaism, the earlier you are, the closer you are to Sinai and the greater the scholars you are. And that's true. But within a certain era, so within, let's say, the Tanaic era or the Amoraic era, uh, within an era, the later you are, the more perspective you have. So yes, the era uh, that preceded um, the Talmud era, the Mishnah era, so think about 200 years before the Common Era, starting with individuals like Hillel and Shammai. We'll talk about them today, hopefully. Uh, and culminating at the uh, second century after the Common Era, or of the Common Era, uh, with individuals like uh, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Eliezer, these are names that we see a lot. But um, uh, most importantly, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince. He was the pivotal figure at, at that time. Uh, he was the one who actually organized the Mishnah. So that's a certain segment in time, and there, and that is always going to override anything that comes in, a, an, in an era afterwards. Uh, but within an era itself, the later you are, the more information you have, the more perspective you have, and you're able to, to add uh, to add to the, uh, to, the, to the discussion. So that's number one. Number two, the reason why we prefer the Babylonian Talmud uh, uh, over the Jerusalem Talmud, uh, despite the fact that the Jerusalem Talmud predated the uh, Babylonian Talmud by more, about, about 180 years, uh, is because the method, this is very interesting, the method of the Talmud and the way it's written uh, is very different. Uh, if you open up Jerusalem Talmud, it's, it's very dry. There's not much dialogue. Mm-hmm. And it also does not... <coughs> does not spend a lot of time dealing with opinions that ultimately are proven incorrect or are disproven or are overwhelmed by the majority. Uh, because there's, a, there's, there's, there's an entire uh, inner workings of how debate is moderated and how we choose sides in, in an argument. So you have an argument by Shammai. Shammai says one thing, Hill says another thing. What do you do? You know? So what do we actually do? They're saying opposite things. We can only we can only practice one way. So there's an entire inner workings of how that's actually adjudicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you open up the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, this Talmud, you'll see that we spend great amounts of very very precious real estate, because the Talmud was written very very precisely and succinctly. Every word was heavily analyze, scrutinize, and, and, and put in. And no, there's no extra words. We don't spend extra time. But we spend a lot of time analyzing, dissecting, arguing over uh, positions that are ultimately proven to be not true or not positions that we, quote-unquote, go with. Positions of outliers. Positions of individuals who end up going against uh, the majority. So when you have an individual against the majority, we go with the majority. But we would still analyze the individual's position. Uh, so therefore... Um, and the benefit of that is, is that even positions that ultimately we do not follow, because it originated by titans of Torah, of scholars of the highest regard, of people of incredible character and, and vision and piety, it has value. And even if in whatever isolated uh, situation, even if ultimately we don't go with them, right, they're disproven, or, not, or not, not, not disproven, or they're disproven for a reason, well, there's still uh, credence to what they said. It was just disproven for a reason. So if that reason were to be removed in a third situation or in a different situation, we would could still go with that. 
The point being is that all the opinions that are brought here are valid, but sometimes they're not valid in the particular instance that they're brought. So that it, it just opens up your mind to a, a million different um, variants in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a situation or a scenario. So the Talmud is not, at least this version, is not presenting just one side. It's oh, no. If you open up any page of Talmud, really, any page of Talmud, you have dialogue and debate. Polemics, every page. Um, but there's there's a method to it. It's it's means that obviously the more you're exposed to it, the more you see how it works. You learn the lingo and you know the direction. Um, but it, it tries. It's oh, it's very logical. It's vol- very logical, and it's also it, it's very, it's like settling things. So um, this is a thing you'll find hundreds of times across the Talmud. Um, you'll find let's say an argument between two two of the rabbis. One says this, one says that. Well, they have to prove it. You don't just say an argument. It's not just whims that people, you know, just, you have to prove it. So he brings a proof, and he brings a proof, right? So then the, then we're going to contrast them. Okay, what are you going to do with his proof? What's he going to do with your proof? So he's going to try to disprove that proof, or he's going to try to disprove that proof, right? So each, each are going to fight against the proofs now. Or they can associate the proof for something else. They say, oh, you're right, that's a good proof, but it's not related to us, it's related to something else. And then they'll say, oh, according to you, that you use this proof for this particular instance, what do you do, how do you derive that thing? So it can, keep on, it can go on for, for, for means it's like, well, theoretically it can be endlessly, but you, you know, it can go on for pages. And, and, and you, have to, you have to really keep track of who, who we're dealing with. It means we're dealing with two people. Let's take a, let's take a, let, it means there's a few principles at work. Are there only... Are we, are there no, there's only two? no, no, no. Sometimes you have this guy and that guy, this rabbi and that rabbi. They both say X. This rabbi and that rabbi, they both say Y. So it can pit two against three, whatever. Um, one of the basic principles is that every verse in the Torah could be derived once. So this is so you you have let's say a verse in the Torah and you have the corresponding law that it's teaching, right? And that verse can only be used for one law, and that law only needs to be derived from one verse. So if I, let's just let's give an example, I derive law X from verse number one. You don't hold of law X. So what's the question? What do you do with verse number one? You have an empty verse now. You have an unused verse. Because it wasn't because I used that verse for the law. You don't agree with the law. Right? You say the law is not true. So now you have to find some usage for that law for, for that verse. Do you understand? So you say, oh no, verse one, it's not for law X. I don't agree with law X. It's for law Y. And then what's the question back to me? Well, where do you know law Y from? Because you can't I can't learn it from the same verse because I used it for law X. So I'll have to either introduce another verse. Oh, I have another verse. Oh, I use. So then, what does he do? What did he use that verse? Then he has an empty verse, and that could go on for a while. Uh, but it's, you know, but but it, it's 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 an example of how we try to settle everything. Or the Talmud tries to settle everything. Everything has to make sense. Even the opinions that ultimately we don't go through, they have to make sense, and they have to. They cannot have something which is uh, which is going to uh, disprove them. They have to have legs to stand on. Even if we don't follow their opinion, but their opinion has to be based upon, it means it has to fit into this big picture. What was their big picture? 
So that's so that's the Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. Now, um, you hear terms like Mishnah and Talmud, and you don't know what is, you hear the term Gemara. Like, just to simplify things, the word Gemara and the word Talmud mean the exact same thing. One is in Aramaic and one's in Hebrew. That's it. Because the Talmud was written in Aramaic, therefore we use the word Gemara because that's the Aramaic word for Talmud. It means the same thing. So we have the Talmud, and the Talmud is uh, an expansion of the Mishnah. So, but the year 200, Rabbi Judah the Prince makes a decision to write down the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the laws of the Torah. That's it, very simple. Laws of Torah, that's what Mishnah is. Well, yes, but it's 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 and the and the written the written law is the framework for that. That's right, and we'll get more into this uh, in today's discussion. Uh, and he and he made a decision to write it down because had he not written it down, back to the the aforementioned Romans uh, and the um, a fellow by the name of the Emperor Hadrian assumes emperorship in the year one seventeen of the Common Era, and one of the first things that he does is makes laws prohibiting Jews from studying Torah in public, from observing the Shabbat, from circumcising their, their children. So uh, basically the Jewish people, they have their temple destroyed, they have the Sanhedrin, which is the central authority of the people, being uh, uh, running from city to city, because they were in Jerusalem, but they left. They had to leave Jerusalem. They went to Yavne. Yavne went to Usha. Usha went back to Yavne. They went to Shvaram. Different cities they're traveling. The central authority's um, uh, uh, ability to govern the people is, is very weakened. We have uh, threats against Torah. If you study Torah publicly, you get executed. Many, many people were executed, like the famous Rabbi Akiva, uh, who had his uh, skin combed off his body uh, by the Romans as a punishment for teaching Torah publicly. So you have a major challenge to the viability of our religion because if you disconnect the Jewish people from Torah, you disconnect the Jewish people from Judaism. That's what's always been demonstrated. And therefore, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, made a decision that even though there is a prohibition against writing down the oral Torah, he said if we don't write it down, we're going to lose it. Therefore, he decided to write it down in collaboration with a thousand other rabbis around the year 180. So yes, uh, that's, that's what we call the Oral Torah. But the Mishnah is the laws of the Torah, but it's very succinct. So you have, um, it's, it's, it's a compilation of 63 books in six sections. Laws and agricultural laws. Remember, it was a very agricultural society. So all the mitzvahs of agriculture, etc., Laws regarding holidays. So there's one book about Passover, one book about Sukkot, one in Rosh Hashanah, one in Yom Kippur. There's a book about Purim. Uh, there's um, a book about Shabbat. Right? Uh, there's a book about holidays in general. The laws of uh, the laws of holidays of of, of events that are time based. Uh, the laws of, of of marriage and divorce. So. Marriage, marriage documents, divorce, divorce documents, leverite marriages, marriage responsibilities, laws of oaths falls under that, um, laws of an adulterous woman falls under that. That's the third section. The fourth section is damages. Damages are all interpersonal uh, 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 civil law, so not criminal law. Uh, so let's say um, the laws of finding lost objects, the laws of... Uh, um, 
of fiduciaries. So if I leave something by your house, the four different kinds of fiduciaries in the Talmud, uh, the laws, property law, com- very complex property law, laws of inheritance, the laws of uh, personal damages, of monetary damages. So I, if I, God forbid, break someone's arm, what do I have to pay? So I have to pay this five categories of damage you have to pay. Uh, the laws of my animal killing your animal or my animal stamping on your produce or my animal consuming your produce or my, uh, you know, right, or my animal goring your animal, right? All those laws. Um, the next book is the book of uh, sacrifices, all the sacrifices in the temple, and last one's the law of purity and impurity. So six sections, 63 books, the Mishnah. A monumental project that spanned many, many years, was heavily, heavily edited, and was very, very succinct. All it said was the laws. It didn't give you any more information. It doesn't tell you where the roots of the laws are, where the sources of the laws are, what the exceptions for the laws are, what are the reasons behind it, none of that. All that was maintained in the oral format. And then the Talmud was the writing of that. So the Talmud is like the completion. Those are two parts of, of one element, which is the oral Torah. All the mitzvahs of the Torah all the laws of the Torah, and that's the Mishnah. And the Talmud is everything else, is the expansion of, it's expanding it. So the sources, the exceptions, um, the specific specific uh, uh, elements of it, etc. Was there discussion in the Mishnah? Or some, just some. But, but even, the even, even the discussion are very brief. Okay, so it's mostly Very, very lists. brief. So like for, lists, exam- so like or... for example, on the, on the Kashrut laws, it would be like shellfish. I mean, and that's it. I mean, yeah, it'll it, no. Uh, okay. If you use, of, but like you say, not citing sources. Yeah. Well, sometimes you then, might have a source come in, but usually not. Um, uh, you have to build a, a sukkah. How tall can you build a sukkah? How short you can build it? Um, if that's you have, if you have, that's that, that's the Mishnah. A. A, a etrode that is stolen is uh, not fit for use on the holiday. Right? Uh, what kind of chauffeur to, to blow? If, the, if a chauffeur has a puncher in it, you can't use it. If a chauffeur has a puncher that the puncher affects the sound of the, of, of the chauffeur, it can't be used on Rosh Hashanah. That's an example of a law. There's no difference in size or anything as far as the chauffeur. That's correct. Uh, but that's just a law. It doesn't tell you what the roots are, what the, what the exceptions are, what the, you know, it doesn't, doesn't elaborate on that. that. That would be the Talmud's job. So that is um, the basic framework of, uh, of the Oral Torah. And the very first commentary on the entire Mishnah was written more than 900 years after the Mishnah was written. So you have 63 books of the Mishnah, and you think you're going to have some commentaries. Right? Of course, you. Jews love commentaries. Jews love literature. Jews love scholarship. So who, you guys want to guess, who was the first one to write a commentary on the entire Mishnah from beginning to end? It's one of the only commentaries, in fact, in the Mishnah. Because the Mishnah, think of the Mishnah as being a, um, a, uh, like, a, like a concentration syrup. You know, like when you, you, know, like when you have um, uh, uh, food coloring, so you put a tiny bit of food coloring and you pour water and you could have like a, a vat full of red water. That's what the Mishnah is. It's so dense, it's so terse, but it contains uh, uh, elements that could be pages upon pages upon pages. 60, so 
Yeah, so this is this is the, um, this is a, an example which is not uncommon. The Talmud is, I mean, the, well, yeah, the Talmud. be monstrous, but yet the Talmud is. No, no. The, well, this is well, this is one book. Oh, <laughs> There's okay. 25 of these. Okay. Uh, but you would have an example here. I mean, this is what a 25 of those, but you got 63. Well, yeah, but many of them. I mean, this this one like, has only one. Shouldn't there be like 400 volumes of Talmud? Uh, uh, well, it's a good question. Um, well, the answer is is that the Talmud wasn't written on all 63 books. Only 39 of them okay. ended up having Talmud in it. Well, even that is... Yeah, uh, but also in these books, you see this has one word over here. Uh-huh. This word is called, the word is Sanhedrin, which is the, books, uh, the book of jurisprudence in the Torah. Like, how do you appoint judges? Which, how do the courts work? How do capital punishment work? How do we interrogate witnesses, etc.? Um, this is one, but you have other volumes that have multiple books in one, in one edition. Now here, look, if you look at this page here, you can see this little break over here. Mm-hmm. This um, is a new chapter. And this it, chapter, the, the, the way the Talmud is structured now is you have Mishnah, then you have Talmud. It's all, it's all interspersed within one. You have the Mishnah starts over here and ends over here. So it's about seven lines of Mishnah. And you'll have one, two, three, about... Like, this is all Talmud, everything in the middle. Okay. Uh, you'll have about... 15 pages of Talmud on one Mishnah. And in the, the center is one well, so over here, the, the yes, in, in the, another. Well, this is the actual Talmud. Right. And this is Rashi right. commentary. And this is the Tosafot, other commentaries. Okay. That's what you have, always and, on the middle and margin. And around the edges, that's... Well, this is extra edges. stuff. This is extra credit. Okay. More advanced stuff. <laughs> um, and then you'll have uh, another Mishnah. T- see, another Mishnah starts over here. Small Mishnah, and then pages of Talmud. Um, so the very first commentary written on the Mishnah, so to write a commentary on the Mishnah is very hard, like we said, because you have, to, you have the Mishnah, but it's so dense. Because a Mishnah, if you want to write a commentary, after the Talmud is ready to written, you've got to incorporate the Talmud, because the Mishnah is just the core root of it. So it took a very special scholar, in fact, one of the most uh, important people in Jewish history, and I don't say that lightly, um, to write a commentary on, on the entire Mishnah. You guys want to guess who it is? You guys, everyone knows the name. I would guess Maimonides. That's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Maimonides, Maimonides changed the world many times. The first time was when he was a teenager. Can you imagine? A teenager. Oh, he started when he was a teenager. He published when he was 24 years old. A monumental commentary on all of Mishnah, all 63 books, beginning to end. A revolutionary work and a work that changed the world multiple times. Um, it was um, remarkable in several ways. Number one, he wrote uh, Hebrew letters, but Arabic words. Very bizarre. But um, he wrote it in Arabic, but he used Hebrew letters. So kind of like if you would like think... transliteration. Transliteration, exactly. Mm-hmm. He, he would do that for a few of his other works. Uh, but another thing that was very interesting was uh, he, the use of introductions. So if you want to know the, um, a concise, clear introduction to everything Torah, read Maimonides' introduction to the Mishnah, the entire thing. Beautiful introduction, fantastic, incredible. You want to read, uh, you want to know what Judaism says about character and Maimonides' very, very incisive Method of 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 uh, 
I guess, his description of the soul and how that plays a part with, with regards to character development. Read his introduction to the book, the, 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 the tractate called Chapters of Our Fathers. Chapters of Our Fathers, if you've heard that, it's one of the 63 books. It's the book about ethics. Right? Everyone is familiar with the Chapters of the Fathers? So he had his introduction uh, to that is also uh, very important. Perkei Avot, exactly. Perkei Avot means chapters of the fathers. So Maimonides, in his commentary on the Mishnah, has an introduction to chapters of the fathers. Fantastic. It's called Shemona Prakim, called the eight chapters. It's if you Google it, they have English translations of the eight chapters. Because there, there are books that are written just on these introductions. And the other, the other introduction that he writes is uh, on is on the last chapter of the Book of Sanhedrin. In this commentary on Mishnah, on the last chapter of the Book of Sanhedrin, he has an introduction. And this is an introduction. It start, well, it's really two parts. The first part is Maimonides' treatise on reward and punishment. Um, and it's actually it's very long, if you want to see. These are all tiny letters. Start from here. It just goes... I just... You know, just and he says like there's five different opinions. Maimonides was very organized. He said there's five different opinions as to what is the reward of doing a mitzvah. List opinion one, two, three, four, and five. And then he says, I'll tell you what it really is. And he gives an introduction. But first, I have to give a few introductions. You know, organized. Well, there's three ways to actually study the Torah. And this way, that way, and only if you listen, you know, you know, study the third way. Only then can you hear what I'm going to say. And then he gives an introduction, more introduction, and then he tells you what it is. He tells you what Lama Ba. Incredible, incredible stuff. And then. He has over here, and you should know that to uh, to be part of our religion, you have to believe in 13 things, the 13 principles of faith. The famous 13 principles that we've been spending so much time studying, where does that come from? From Maimonides' introduction to the last chapter of the Book of Sanhedrin in his commentary in the Mishnah. And when you looked in the, in, in the, in the, in the Sidur, when it has the uh, the uh, the animamins, uh, which is uh, the um, uh, which is the shortened version of these of these thirteen principles, you see it's actually very short. I believe X, I believe Y, right? I believe number one, I believe number two, I believe number three. You see over here, like this is one, this is two, this is three, four, five, six, seven. Ooh, it's pretty long. Like, <laughs> and this is eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and thirteen. These, that's it, and it's, it's more, actually more information than we had, than we have in the Animamans. This part, or uh, this part of 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 this com- of this introduction, caused a tremendous firestorm and controversy uh, across the Jewish world. Like the reverberations were felt everywhere, uh, because Maimonides made a claim, and his claim was that there there are thir- there are certain beliefs. That are more important than others. In fact, there are certain beliefs that are so fundamental, pivotal, crucial, and vital to our religion that if you don't believe them, well, you're basically excluding yourself from the religion. So that's so. Just that idea was something that was very controversial. But also, Maimonides. Think about it. You have a 24 year old scholar. Now, everyone, no one doubted his his capabilities, and eventually, even his greatest detractors. Uh, uh, came around because uh, this was his first major major accomplishment, but then he had other ones which which may, were may, even perhaps arguably more impressive. Uh, so he 
he said that there's 13, and these 13 are not, and, and these specifically, and he outlines them very clearly what, what, what he's looking for. Uh, and there was a book written, a, basically a rebuttal of Maimonides, called the book called Sefer HaIkram, the book of the principles, written by a contemporary. And he says, no, there's not 13, there's three. Right? Not 13 principles, there's three principles. What are the three principles? Principle number one, you've got to believe in God. Principle number two, you've got to believe in prophecy, like the Torah. Um, and principle three, you have to believe in reward and punishment. What's actually interesting to uh, many of the scholars is that if you analyze the Maimonides' 13 principles, you'll find that he actually agrees 1,000% with the Sefer HaIkram. Why? If you look at Maimonides, the very first five of the 13 principles are elements of what we believe when we say we believe in God. The next four are elements about what we say we believe in prophecy. And the last four are reward and punishment. So Maimonides is indeed agreeing. They agree on the core principle. But Maimonides is saying you have to believe specifically. You can't say, oh, I believe in God. Because if, if you ask a Christian, the average Christian, anyone in Houston, average guy in Houston, do you believe in God? Most people will say yes. And they say, do you believe in Jesus? Most people say yes as well. Now, if you believe that God has any parts or has any body, then according to Maimonides, you may believe in idea of God, but you don't fully believe in all five elements, all five principles that we have with regards to our theology. So, therefore, you'll, you'll, you'll strike out and you won't, you, you, you won't fill all the bots and all the criteria to, uh, to have all 13 principles. So that's why you have to kind of break it down. My mind has made a lot of sense now. You have to break it down to specifics. Which specifics do I need to believe in in order to be in line with the Jewish faith? So that's that. So uh, now what's important to note that if you if you Google this matter, you'll find right away many, many references to the controversy that emerged out of this publication of these 13 principles. What it has to be maintained as absolutely clear is that although there was controversy regarding uh, labeling these 13 as being principles, no one claimed that these ideas weren't valid. I mean, the controversy was not as to the legitimacy of these 13 principles. Everyone agreed that they're all legitimate. The argument was, are they principles or not? But everyone agreed that they're absolutely true and legitimate and, and, and part of the collected faith of the, of, of the people. Now, was there any argument as to whether 13 is too many or there should be more than 13? Why 13? Well, you know, 13 was Maimonides in his, his, in his tremendous yeah. uh, intelligence and knowledge and, and scope of Torah. He, he determined these are the 13 and no more, no less. Right, but that's what I'm saying. Right, right, right. But there were, other, there were others that, 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 that had a hard time accepting that. But um, it has since become... How could you narrow it down to 13? Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe the 613 principles, or every mitzvah is its own principle. I'm saying that would be the argument, or one of the arguments, potentially. Either way, um, it's clear, post facto, that you know, it's became part of the Jewish uh, collective... Uh, Belief, uh, it's been it, the doctrine um, of Maimonides has been ensconced in every prayer book. Every prayer book has it nowadays, and it's been uh, unchallenged and un. Uh, um, uh, there hasn't been any uh, any uh, any real debate um, for 
800 years. So we're up to number nine. And I think it's a very, very important one. Let's read it. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it and translate it because it's very short. So um, last week we had the eighth principle, which is that, that the Torah is divine. Words of the Torah, Torah is divine. What's important, uh, says Maimonides now, is okay, the Torah is divine. Moses got the Torah, he got the oral Torah, he got the written Torah, he got the instructions of what Tefillin looks like, even though the written Torah doesn't say it. He got the instructions of what a sukkah has to be and what a lulav has to look like, even though it doesn't say it explicitly in the Torah. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 21, where it says, You shall slaughter an animal as per my instructions. And nowhere else in the Torah, or in fact in the entire Jewish Bible, nowhere else does it tell you how to actually do that slaughtering. How do we, how do we make an animal kosher? It doesn't say it anywhere. But it says, as I instructed you, it clearly points to some other instruction that was not committed to paper, the oral instruction. Similarly, in the middle of Exodus, we have a mitzvah. Uh, and it, the Almighty tells Moses, Sov zos basefer. Write this in a book. I'm sorry. Write this in a book in the Torah and place in the ears of Joshua. What the Almighty is telling us is that there was an element of committing to book, and there's another element that was transmitted orally to Joshua. It's clear from reading of the Torah. The Torah tells us that if someone uh, uh, desecrates the Shabbat, they should be executed. Well, what, what's included in that doesn't doesn't say explicitly. The Torah says, thou shalt not murder. If you murder, you're, you're liable. Well, does it tell us what the parameters of murder are? What, what's considered murder? What's considered not murder? We have a lot, especially in this book. This book deals with capital punishment. It has a huge section talking about murder. And it deals with questions such as, if someone is wearing, uh, uh, if someone has a, an, a, an armor or a shield protecting them from, from, uh, from, uh, from bullets or from uh, an arrow, so there's a man over there. I'm, you know, there's a man over there. A man over there. He's holding uh, an arrow. He shoots the arrow. The guy has a shield, and the shield will clearly block the arrow. As the arrow is midair, another guy comes, swipes away the shield, and it penetrates the guy and kills him. Who's liable? Are they liable? Are they both liable? Is anyone liable? Questions like that, dealing with nitty gritty situations. Um, of where it's up in the air, you know? And that is part of the oral Torah because that was given to Moses as well. Remember, if God is giving us the way to live, this is God Almighty we're talking about. Clearly, he doesn't want there to be ambiguity. Clearly, he wants there to be a method to fulfill everything. So clearly, he did it in the best way possible. And the best way possible is when part of it is written. It's a reference. You could always use that to test the validity of your tradition. Part of it's in a tradition, orally, oral instruction is much better than written instruction because, remember, you guys went to school. You didn't just read books from your house. You went to university. Why? Because you learn better when you hear from somebody. There's inflection. right? There is voice. right? The oral instruction is much better way to transmit information. That's why. You don't just read, read a book because read a book, a book could be amb- ambiguous. You don't understand it that way. The Almighty wanted it to be instructed to us in the clearest possible way. Therefore, it's oral. Number one, because of inflection. Number two, because you develop a bond with other people. People are learning together. You have a relationship with the scholar. You have that link back to Sinai. 
Number three, also interesting, because when it's oral, it cannot be hijacked by anyone else. We suffered so much once the Gentiles got their hands on, their to- on our Torah. The Septuagint, written uh, about, uh, uh, two, uh, about 245 years before the Common Era, under the um, instruction of Telemai, of uh, Telemai, the fourth or the third, I can't remember, that caused a lot of headaches. And in fact, it's, it's forever. The day that the Septuagint was written, the Greek translation of the Torah, is a day of mourning in our calendar because our Torah is our Torah. It doesn't belong in anyone else's hands. We haven't gotten any uh, positive feedback, or I'm saying we may have gotten a little bit, but it hasn't been an overall deal for when the Torah is in, is in non-Jewish hands. Oral Torah, you prevent that. So there's lots of reasons why they might want to be oral. So, but the written Torah is also indispensable because, like we said, your tradition is only as good as how well it fits into the verses. And if you open up the Talmud, you see this on every page. You see, the rabbi says, oh, my teacher told me that this is the way it is. And I have a verse. And you're always, you always going to reference the verse. They're saying, hey, this is how it fits in the verse. That's how you do this from the verse. And then he'll say, oh, but my tradition says that the verse is used for something else. It's, it's the verse... And the written text of the, uh, of the Torah is a framework. And if your oral tradition does not fit into that framework, then there's a problem. It's a safeguard to ensure that the oral transmission is maintained accurately. So it's brilliant. You have the best method of instruction, plus you have the way to ensure that no mistakes are, uh, are, fall in, in, into, the, in, into the transmission. It's remarkable. It's tremendously effective. In fact, we claim that today we have the same Torah, the same Torah that Moses got from Sinai. 3,300 years ago was maintained in its absolute purity till today. And that is what, uh, this, this, this is going to uh, number nine. Let's, let me read it to you. The transmission. Number nine is about the transmission. And that is, I'm just giving direct translation. Because the this Torah that we that we have is um, dictated, or it's or it was transmitted, uh, it was dictated from the Almighty, not from anyone else, and we cannot add or subtract. Very interesting. We don't add or subtract. If a if a if a if a uh, if a prophet comes to us and say, "Hey, there's one mitzvah by the way that we don't do anymore. I'm a prophet. God told me that." You know what we do to that prophet? We put him down because that's a false prophet. No prophet has the ability to override the prophecy of Moses. Moses gave us the Torah. We don't add anything to that. We don't subtract anything to that. We have 24 books of the Bible. Only five of them are the Torah. Five of them are from Moses. And in those five, you have all 613 mitzvahs. No mitzvahs are given to us in the book of uh, Joshua, the book of Kings, the book of Samuel, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Isaiah. We don't have any mitzvahs there, the book of Judges, the book of Psalms, the book of Job, the book of Esther, the book of Ruth. No no mitzvahs there. Why? Because the mitzvahs come from Moses. We don't add it to the tract for that. Continues Maimonides. And we don't change, not in the Torah that is written, and not in the oral Torah. As it says, don't add, he quotes a verse, and says there's a verse that's repeated multiple times in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 11. Uh, don't add on it, and don't subtract from it. So, that's number, th- that's number nine, and that is the transmission of the Torah in its most accurate uh, uh, um, and, and the same thing we have today is it hasn't been flipped before. We don't change it. It's the same thing we got from Moses. Now, you'll say, hey, 
3,300 years is a long time. And we're relying on mortal man. And we're claiming that all 304,805 letters of the Torah are the same ones that Moses gave us. That's the written Torah. And the oral Torah, very dynamic, very expansive, very broad, very exhaustive. Exhaustive, not that it makes you tired, but that it's all-inclusive, all-encompassing. Mm-hmm. How could you really claim? Is that legitimate? Is that reasonable? So, let's first preface this by saying that, um, I'll go back to the Talmud over here. The Talmud says something very, very, um, it should be very, um, I think it should be scary, but it, it should also be eye-opening. Because the claim itself is something which is remarkable. And it says, it's it's a continuation of what we said now. If someone says that Torah is not divine, they have no portion of the world to come, which means they're not part of the Jewish people, which is where Maimonides got, by the way. That's the source. Maimonides had sources for everything that he, that he wrote. Um, and even if someone says the entire Torah is divine, the entire Torah is divine, Besides for one pasuk, one verse, there's one verse that's not true. That Moses wrote himself, that Ezra wrote, it doesn't matter, that's not from God. He has no portion of the world to come. Can you imagine? Any, every single verse. And like you today. accept it all as a package. Complete exactly, package. exactly, exactly. And if someone, if someone says even one verse, this is part of the written Torah, mm-hmm. they have no portion of the world to come. Think about that. Think, think about the magnitude of the decision. Someone has to decide to say, I'm going to challenge the veracity, the validity, the truthfulness of one verse. What they're doing is, according to the Talmud, they're taking themselves out of the Jewish people. It's terrible. And we have, I'm saying, we, 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 we understand that there's things that we don't understand. And that's okay. And when, when you know, today, we society has... Uh, embraced homosexuality as being a very normal thing. That's what society has said. You open up the Torah, the Torah says that homosexuality is forbidden. This creates a problem for us because we live today and it's very hard to um, maintain a, uh, a socially unacceptable position you know, that's in the Torah. What's very important for us to realize, if we take a scalpel and cut out that verse... We're basically, it's as if rejected the entire Torah. It's a package. Now, does that mean that we understand everything? No. And we have the humility to say, I don't understand it. But it's divine, it's from God, and it's not changing. We don't add, we don't subtract. It's okay to say, I don't understand. That's fine. But don't take any verse out. Because the second you do that, you're taking yourself out of the Jewish people. You're saying, this is not from God. That's what you're doing. You're taking the scalpel, and whatever it may be, it doesn't matter what it is. You cannot take it anywhere. It's got to be an entire package. And the second you take out even one thing, the entire the entire book um, loses its value. Because the second you say, "Oh, Moses added this. This is not from God. This is not real. This is not true. This is not right." What you're you're delegitimizing the entire book. Because the second one verse could be fabricated, well, any other verse could be fabricated as well. Yes. Well, could it be an interpretation then of saying? in the Torah it says man should not lay with another man or something. Yeah. Not, that may not be the exact words, yeah. but to that extent. <laughs> but with science we know that the the genes you're born with mm-hmm. is that you may really have genes even though you may present yourself as a man you may really be 
hating the woman inside, trying, you know what I'm saying? So that the interpretation or yeah, understanding well, it to explain it is to yeah, say and the a Tama, man is the not Tama really has, laying with a man because it's not really to me The Tama talks about <laughs> about people of questionable sexual uh, sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a sexuality, but um, um, gender. Yeah. The Tama deals with that at great length. Okay. Um, it's a good question. Um, and I don't know the answer, and that's fine. And it also says, um, but it didn't say anything about a woman with a woman. And that's and Maimonides himself writes, he says, hey, that's not pro- that's not prohibited by Torah law. It's not. Um, Only men? That's correct. What you going to do, right? <laughs> um, so that's not prohibited by Torah law. Even though Maimonides says, listen, it's discouraged, but it's not prohibited. Mm-hmm. Um and we're fine with that as well. Do we understand why there's a distinction? No. And that's also okay. But for us to... I mean, and when we're presented with a conflict, what are we going to do? Are we going to say, are we going to try to uh, change the Torah by saying either it's not legitimate, it's not accurate, we don't read... Or we're we going to say, listen... Try to understand it. Try to understand it or say, yes, our society got this one wrong. That's possible. You know, there's, there's been... We've had mistakes in the past and that's Okay. But we don't question the 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 the, um, the veracity of any part of the Torah, as difficult as it may be. And we have the humility to say, "I don't know." And the Talmud it says, A person should always um, practice and regularly say, "I don't know." That's fine. When someone gets up and says, "This is not true. This is something we're, we're exercising from the Torah," they're saying, "I do know." And I have the arrogance to say that this is not divine or this is not true because society has uh, has has gone a different direction. It's arrogant, and it's it, it's it's arrogant saying I understand everything, and therefore, and I, and I have the vision and the insight and the wisdom to say that this part's not divine. How could you say that? It's so it's it's very arrogant on one hand, mm-hmm. and the the gravity of such a decision is is incredible. Well, does it also come down to how literal? Word for word, without looking at the Talmud. Uh, that that's a good that, question. Yes, um, and I but, think that's part of the problem with uh, with. Uh, we don't Al-Qaeda take the Torah. We don't take the Torah. We don't take the Torah literally. No, and um, that's why I'm. But saying, we have. But, but we have. We have the Talmud. The Talmud teaches us how. Yeah. Number one, how to do it, but also demonstrates how to do it. Yeah. Um, but there was this one guy, who was an Orthodox guy, of course. <laughs> And he wrote this whole book saying, well, it doesn't mean homosexual. I mean, just the example that we used. There are other examples that we could have used. Right. He says, oh, it doesn't mean that. You know, He tried to say that it's permitted by Torah law, a homosexuality. And what he's clearly doing is saying, listen, I have this desire to make it like that. I'm going to try to fork it in. You know, I'm going to squeeze. I'm going to use a shoehorn. I'm going to shoehorn it in. No, it's clear that's prohibited. That There's a clear conflict. There's no way around it. Um we have the option of saying, listen, we don't understand it. This is the Torah. I don't understand it. And you know what? There's a lot of things in the Torah we don't understand. And that's fine. If I'm going to say this is not true, I'm going to question it. I'm going to try to say, oh, God, you know, try to shoehorn my position that I've adopted because of society or whatever into the Torah. That's not what we do. We don't do that. We have the humility to say we don't know if we don't know. That's fine. Um... And, and, and this is striking. Every single one. We can't just say, this this one's divine, this one's not divine. Let's continue. What about oral Torah? What about oral Torah? Continues the Talmud here. 
even if someone says that the entire Torah is divine, it's besides for this chaserot v'yeterot, right? In the Torah, in Hebrew, um, there are no vowels. Do you know that? No yeah. vowels? In the... Because those vowels are nekudot. Is that right? Um, I'm looking, looking around the room to see if I see any examples. Um, there, however, if you open a Torah, some words are spelled with vowels, and some are spelled without vowels. Sometimes the vowels are in the form of nekudot that are not written on the page, on the, on the cloth. Some are written. And that, and that is a tradition that we have all the way back to Sinai, dating back to Sinai. If someone says that this is not that that, that and, and this is something which we would consider to be not so important because it's just vowels or not vowels, it's like the C O L O R versus C O L O U R, like it's just an extra vowel that it doesn't seem to make 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 much of a difference. But if someone says, "Hey, the Torah we have, it doesn't really, it's not, it doesn't matter if you add vowels or subtract vowels," even something as minor as that, they're rejecting the Torah, and. A kalvachomer. Kalvachomer is, is a um, is a method that the Talmud uses. Of uh, it's a syllogism, a syllogism that the Talmud uses. It's a method of deriving laws, right? Uh, if uh, if uh, if uh, this is just the way it's. Um, if A is stronger than B, uh, and B is stronger than C, then A is certainly stronger than C. Right? We're familiar with that. It's logical, and that but that is part of the tradition. And only those kinds of examples that have been transmitted all the way back from Moses, only those are the ones that we use. So if someone rejects him one of those, well, he's rejecting the Torah of Moses. This is how strong it goes. Another example is at Zerah Shava. Zerah Shava is where you bring a comparison between uh, two verses where they have the same word. So if word X appears in one part of the Torah and word X appears in the second part of the Torah, we're able to make comparisons between those two uh, concepts. Uh, now, that is also a method that's very, very rife throughout the Talmud, mm-hmm. ubiquitous uh, uh, th- uh, throughout the Talmud. But it's also, this is also part of the tradition. You can't reject that as well. So that's how specific we get to um, how uh, how broad this um this uh, uh, this tradition is, and that's all included in one mod- this principle. So yes, it's not an easy principle. It's not. No, no one's going to argue that. Uh, but this is something that we have to try to find a way to believe in it. Now you'll say this is the que- that was the introduction. The question is, well, it's a long time. How do we know that we still have the exact same method? Of tra- How do we know that's the same? But the answer is it's really not so long, because remember the Talmud was written in five hundred. The Mishnah is written in the year 200. So that's what we have. So we already have it all written down. We have it all written down. Therefore, you could slice uh, 15 and 1800 years out of the 3300 years. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Because it was already written down. So it doesn't, we don't have to have a tradition going all the way till us. We have to just go all the, way, all the way to the Talmud. That's number one. Number two, we have prophets in as leaders of the people dating all the way to the year 350 before the Common Era. Right? We have Chagai, Zechariah, and Melachi. They were the last of the prophets, and they lived during the Second Commonwealth, during the Second Temple period, right? about the year 350, even earlier, uh, even, even later. So we could slice off another thousand years 
uh, of prophecy because a prophet, if there's any doubt in in in, in, a, in a particular uh, uh, element of the written Torah or of the oral Torah, they would go straight to the prophet, and the, and the prophet would help them, uh, would would clarify things. So that gives us basically only for about the year 350 to the year 200 of the Common Era, 550 years where it has to be transmitted accurately. But even more, if you look in um, the Book of Numbers, I believe it's chapter 16, Moses establishes a body of uh, basically the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. It's called, what's the word for the Supreme Court? It's called Sanhedrin. This book, Sanhedrin, is actually named, it's named after that because it's the book of law. The Sanhedrin was established by Moses, 71 judges. Now, this is the longest lasting uh, uh, element of central authority of the people. And it, Moses began, started it, and it continued into the third century of the Common Era. Their job was to adjudicate the people. Their job was to mediate any arguments. Their job took a very central role in transmitting the Torah. Because once the prophecy, prophecy ends, you still have this body. And you have uh, uh, accounts of debates and disagreements and diversions in tradition. And what happens when that happens? They would go to Jerusalem and describe. When you, when you have ben dam, ledam, ben din, ledin, the Torah says, when you have a question, you don't know the answer. And there's an argument. And one rabbi in one end of the town says one thing. The rabbi in the other end of the town says a different thing. You don't know what to do. You go to Jerusalem and you present your argument in front of, of the Supreme Court. And in fact, there were three Supreme Courts. One of 23, 23 justices, another one of 23 justices, and a third one of 71. You go to the first one, the second one, if no one has the answer, it's, like, it's basically like we have today in the, in, the, in the federal court system. You go to the Supreme Court. And whatever the Supreme Court says, that's what happens. That's what happens. Therefore, and that body existed throughout. And that was a fluid body. It was dynamic. It was ongoing. And it didn't have a single break from the time of Moses till it was disbanded. Why and at the point when it was disbanded, that's when this was always written. So it's remarkable. We don't really have a gap where it needs to be transmitted by individuals. That being said, why was it disbanded? Because it was disbanded because because the Romans made it very difficult. The Romans remember they had to run away; that they had to go to different cities. They were right. in Yavne and oh, Usha, okay. so uh, and then they they were scattered exactly. And at that point, when the central authority was very weakened, that's when they decided to write down the Mishnah. Because now there's a threat to be exposed to basically what you guys are asking me. Now you're exposed to transmission, people to people, rabbi to student, individual isolated transmissions, not unique, not not, not uh, uh, community wide transmissions uh, within the framework of this uh, of this one uh, body. Now we have to write it down, or else we're going to lose it. Because yes, yeah, <laughs> human fallibility is something that we're all too familiar with, unfortunately. Uh, and, but, uh, but, that's, that seems like it's the heater going on, or the air conditioner. Yes, it, well, it hasn't been working for the past two days. Well, there you go, so now it's working. Yeah. Uh, so we don't really have so much time when we're exposed. Now, I want to add another thing. Back in the day, Jews were as obsessed with education as we are today, but a lot more. Mm-hmm. When people would have, they would have a relationship with their teacher, they would spend, on average, 14 years studying everything that, the, that their teacher knew to become, to become a teacher on their own. This existed ac- 
across the nation for thousands of years. Not thousands, but, but that, uh, hundreds of years. Uh, more than a thousand, but not thousands. So with all these safety gaps and with all the central authority and with the prophets and with the Sanhedrin, you still had scholars across the land and they, were, and they had relationships with their, with their teachers. That all, all those, all those methods of ensuring the, uh, a fluid transit, transmission of the Torah, all those ended basically, and then the Mishnah was written. Um, the written Torah, what about the written Torah? Oh, one, one more important point here. Remember, we said if you have this disagreement, one rabbi says one thing, one rabbi says the other thing. You go to, you go to the Sanhedrin. Um, if you look at the law, there's a very, very interesting law of a rogue judge. You have, let's say, this case of one of the Rabbi X and Rabbi Z, right? Uh, they go to the, the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin gives them the answer. And then they go back to they go back to the cities. One of them was proven right, the other one was proven wrong. If he still maintains his position, the one who's wrong, he still teaches it, he will is liable for capital punishment. We take this thing so seriously because the second you have two Judaisms, right, we lose what makes us special. We have a system of, uh, of ensuring that we have one religion and that the accurate Torah is transmitted. You go it, you, 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 you do it. You have an argument, you go to the you go to the temple, you go to Sanhedrin, you have an answer. It's very important to now everyone follows the answer that was given. Because otherwise you undermine the power of the central authority to ensure the transmission of the Torah. That was the job of the Sanhedrin, that's what they did. If one road judge decided to uh, rebel against that, he would be executed. And this has to be a scholar. It has to be a scholar. If someone's not a scholar, they can't. They don't fall into that category. Very interesting law. You have to be a scholar. You have to be. Uh, uh, you have to be in, uh, uh, of the highest note. You have to have smicha. Smicha is a term of, of rabbinic ordination that we use today, but in in, in the Talmudic times, it meant something else. It meant direct ordination from rabbi to student that began with Moses. Another example of, of this transmission of the Torah. It ended. The Romans. The Roman, one of the things the Romans banned was giving smicha. They said if anyone gave smicha to anyone else, they would be executed. There was one rabbi by the name of Yehuda ben Baba, who, who um, the Talmud t- tells that he uh, that he gave smicha to five students, and they the Romans came and they made and they 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 um, they um, stabbed him with with three hundred spears. So they executed him in a very horrible, gruesome way. So. To be a road judge, you have to be someone of a scholar of note who has smicha. Smicha means, means that you knew everything. And you had a Rebbe, that, and a Rebbe who had a Rebbe who had a Rebbe who was Moses. But if this guy goes awry, then the entire framework of what keeps uh, our oral Torah true uh, is in jeopardy. Written Torah as well. When you write a, If you write a Torah, 304,805 letters, you write a Torah and it's missing one letter, or one letter is chipped, or one letter, two letters are touching, the Torah cannot be used. You have 30 days to fix it. If you don't fix it, it has to be buried. Torah is very expensive. You don't want to bury it. We don't keep Torahs that are not 100% accurate around. A Torah has to be written from an existing Torah. You can't write Torah from a Chumash. A Torah has to, the scribe has to write it, but he has to word it as well. He has to say every word before he writes it. Um, Every couple of hundred years throughout Jewish history, they would take all the Torahs of, uh, of, of the towns and they would compare them. And if there was any mistake, 
Uh, so if 99 scrolls said said you know had it with this letter, one of them had they would they would weed out the mistakes, because the mistake could perpetuate because Torah scrolls are copied from each other. Mm-hmm. Remarkably, we take a look at oh. at uh, in 1947, the greatest archaeological survey of all time was made in Israel in Qumran, and they found Torah scrolls, and the Torah scrolls were in remarkable condition because it was very dry there. Very dry, the, well, the driest place on earth is, is the Dead Sea area. And in the caves, they found, that they found Torah scrolls. We compared them to our Torah scrolls. Identical. Identical. Why? Because it works. It works. The written Torah was not corrupted, the oral Torah was also not corrupted. And this is the principle. And we have so, there's, there's so many safeguards, so many things that are done to ensure, to make sure that these things are, are copied accurately. There's no mistakes. If there's a mistake, it's quickly fixed. Yes, of course, there could be mistakes, but they're quickly fixed and they don't get perpetuated. So that's so that so that's the thing. And I, it's, like I said, it's not easy. And there's sometimes that we're going to have to face with a choice, and it's not going to be a comfortable choice. What our job is to say, I don't know everything. I'm not arrogant. I'm not going to say that I do know everything. I'm not, and I'm fine with that, and that's fine. And the Torah commends us for that. If you say you don't know, that's a positive thing. But this is the principle. And we, uh, we know that it's reasonable. There's so many different elements to ensure the matrix that, it, that it's transmitted accurately. So many safety measures uh, that were uh, enacted to make sure that it was done properly. And we can safely assume that it was. We have no record of, 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 any, of, any, of any mistakes falling. We have uh, back to those caves. They took out the tefillin. Those tefillin look identical to our tefillin, even though tefillin doesn't say anyone in the Torah. It's all oral. Oral. And 2,000 years, how many mistakes can fall in 2,000 years, especially when in 2,000 years there's so much exile and there's so much persecution and there's so much inquisition and holocaust and endless pogroms and, and endless factionalism splintering amongst the people. You take the tefillin today, you take the tefillin 2,000 years ago, identical. We have, a, we, there's a method to this. 2,400 years ago, right, between the first and second temple uh, period, there was a group of people, a Jews, that went to Yemen. Now, Yemen is separated uh, it is a peninsula, so it's, separate. it's three sides is water, and the other side is the Arabian Desert. They were isolated from the people. Isolated. During the 50s and 60s of this century, this past century, they came to Israel, and they brought the films. And you know what? They were remarkably the same. In fact, they were identical to the films that we have. They brought the Torah scrolls. Not a single word was different. Incredible. We have a system, and the system works. We believe it fully. Uh, we have tremendous visionaries and scholars and people like Maimonides. These are the people that uh, titanic intelligence. They say it's clear. It's clear that it was it's the same thing. It is the same thing. It makes sense. It works. That's the ninth the ninth principle. Thank you all for coming. No, thank you for here. Questions. So if, um, as, as Bill says, let's take his example in terms of uh, homosexuality. So if we don't believe or don't accept 100% what the Torah is saying, we have our own spin, interpret, it's not interpretation, but our own. We just don't accept it. It does. We feel, you know, modern spin, whatever. Then, do you all? Do you feel that we are not 
Jews. We're not good Jews. We're not. I mean, if you cut it out, you know. If no. We cut, so are, this. If we are cutting it out, are we then? Cut or are, out? are you are you are you cutting it out, or are you saying, hey, this is the Torah of God? I, I, I once wrote an article saying, hey, it's just in this topic. Um, I, I knew I picked a topic. It was a volatile topic, of course. Unless, my brother would never talk about this. Um, so I wrote an article saying, listen, we don't believe that our country, the United States of America, has to be governed by Torah law. Do you think it should? Do you think all the freeways are closed on Shabbat? I don't think so. But it's in the Torah. Because we, we believe that politically they can make their own decisions. What you're, what, what, what you're asking is, hey, I believe homosexuality should be, gay marriage should be legal. You know what? So do a lot of people. There's nothing wrong with that. But you, you're not saying that it's not, that the Torah agrees with that. Is that right? It's like, you're not saying that. Right. Do you believe that the Torah that we have is the same Torah that, and the Torah does not like homosexuality? Yes. You have political opinions that are opposite that, and that's fine. You don't believe the Torah ha- that the, that the United States has to be run by Torah law, of course. No one does, right? right. So, uh, uh, so I don't believe that you're saying what you think you're saying. You're not saying what you think you're saying. We're not cutting it out by yeah, not of course following not. or believing. We are not cutting it out. Yeah. Do you believe that that's in the Torah and that's the Torah that the Almighty gets to Moses? Yes. yes. So what's the problem? That that, that you know I'm that yeah. How can how you literal, believe if you can't? Well, how can you follow something you do not believe? Well, it depends on how literally you you interpret you you understand what that says. Because again, like I said, and is it really a man laying with a man, or is it because this man is not truly he's a man physically, but is he really a man? Right. And you know maybe that's explained. But the, 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 the point. The, but I also think that biologically you might be a man. You know, listen. But not you know, mentally uh, I, or genetically. There's a whole debate as to, you know, is abortion legal in Torah law. I think that's a very interesting debate. Uh, maybe it's a very important debate. It has no bearing on any political decisions or political positions we have in America. Why? Because as Americans, we don't have to. Uh, we don't have to believe that our government has to be run by Torah law. I can believe the Torah is a thousand percent true. The Torah is written for us. It's for our, it's it's for us. It's for our community. It's not for the whole world. It's not for America. Whatever is popular, let it be popular. If gay marriage is popular, fine. Let there be gay marriage. Who cares? I'm fine with that. <laughs> I I have nothing against someone who believes a thousand percent in the Torah and believes that gay gay marriage should be legal and goes and has a rainbow flag and goes and marches. That's fine. Because what you're saying is, I want our government to not give uh, uh, laws and legislation based upon religion. That's also fine. You know what? It's much better for us when religion is not a a force in legislation, because otherwise we would get screwed, because we're not Christians. I'm fine with that. Well, let me take another step then with the gay lesbian, just to say that. There are synagogues that are gay lesbian synagogues. Yeah, we know that. Yeah. So how is that viewed upon in terms of listen? Um, that's, that's a different question. That's a that's a that's a different question. Exactly, I know that. Um, but uh, I feel very confident in saying someone who believes gay marriage should be legal does not encroach on this 
particular principle. Mm-hmm. Believe it can reach and I'll defend it. Because, like we said, you're not saying it's not it's not in the Torah. You're not taking that part of the Torah. You're saying it is in the Torah. The Torah does not agree with that. And the Torah is a Torah that was given to Moses. So what? That, that it shouldn't govern how uh, our society or our, um, our government should impose laws. Just like it shouldn't close the freeways on Shabbat. I don't understand why there's a conflict here. There shouldn't be a conflict. Yeah, and like saying, but I'm saying it is a you can't serve bacon or ham. Or yeah, exactly. Do you think that do you do you, th- yeah. do you think that even even the most ardent uh, uh, believer in the Torah should say that? Of course not. No, it, it's even so because the talking about I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about general our beliefs mm-hmm. as Jews as Jews yeah as. And that's why I brought as up reformed, gay lesbian as synagogue. reformed Jews, I guess. But we're Jews. I know that you know, you know Yeah, we don't believe in that. Like the labels, which actually I absolutely <laughs> love. No labels. I love that. I learned no that early, early on. Yeah, it's not. It's a Jew. Yeah, right. Jew is but a Jew. as being more liberal, more open. Well, no, yeah, well, well, well. no, no, no labels. Yeah. Okay. Um, right. But, but ha- you listen. Um, I, if I, I'm not following it, so you're saying that remember it's more these are the beliefs belief and acknowledgement that this is this is in the Torah and the Torah I was given. follow or not. It I'm, doesn't say. I acknowledge this is a belief. This is in there and and yeah, that's okay. I believe that it's in there and that's yeah, okay. That's Whether I follow it, that's the, these else. are principles of faith. And every person has their collection of of mitzvot and avirot that they have that they have to deal with. And that's a separate discussion. And there could be someone who doesn't doesn't follow the Torah but still believes in it and believes it's true. And I, I have I have a I have a friend. This guy I don't know I don't know I don't think he observes anything. I don't know if he fasts him kippur. I don't know. Um, and he's got tattoos and he looks like a, he doesn't look Jewish, but he says to me, "Listen, I believe it's a thousand percent true." A thousand percent true, and I know it's true. And I hope when I die, I, I I'm literally living that way. So he's obviously not living today in a behavior that's in line with the Torah, but he believes in all thirteen principles. That's fine. But I actually think that there's there's a, there's a, there's a, there has to be a measure. There's a measure of of humility. You know, it's it's humility to say, listen, we're not perfect. We don't understand everything, and it's still true, and that's fine. It's still true. It's, it's part of the Torah. Um, and it was given to Moses, and I don't understand it, and I won't hear that. But I'm not encroaching on, on these principles, like, 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 like our friend. So and I yeah, so my, my brother will be upset if I told, told you that I brought up controversial issues. But I, I wasn't, we, we, we didn't deal with the controversial. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, exactly, exactly. So I know that maybe you could help, you remember, uh, or fill in the holes. Remember, Rabbi came in once, that there was a rabbi, if I'm not mistaken, at Yeshua, yeah. who cut out, yeah. uh, or was one of the, some of the prayers in uh, Yom, Kippur. Yom Kippur, cut out, it had to do with uh, homosexuality, gay and lesbian. And so that is actually cutting it out. I think he has a gay or lesbian. Child, 
And so, therefore, he wasn't going to preach from the pulpit. Right, so that was, uh, yes. Wasn't that the issue? Yeah. Right? So, um, so that's an example, I think, of... That's cutting out. The that's cutting that it did, out, exactly. Did he change the prayer or just not say the prayer? I think they, they, didn't, they didn't read It was part of the Torah, the Torah reading for that day. Whatever. I don't want to talk about any individual, but, um, yeah. But I, that's, that, that's an example. That's actually that's an example. cutting And out. I think that there's room for humility over here to say, listen, this is in the Torah. And it's a problem for us because we have a hard time accepting that. But it's still true, mm -hmm. and I don't understand it. And I could politically um, not necessarily, I don't have to, my political beliefs don't have to be uh, religious based, and that's mm -hmm. fine. Um, and, the, and, and we can move on. We don't take a scalpel and cut out parts of the Torah. We just don't do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Everyone have a wonderful week. And Thank you.